Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Dr. Michael Kudish, forest biologist, speaks with Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson about his studies on plant fossils from soil samples in the Catskills. We'll also hear remarks from Carolyn Summers, who hosted a field trip in a bog at her Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Emergency teams are using cadaver dogs in their search for survivors on the island of Maui. Officials in Hawaii say the death toll from fast-moving wildfires this week has risen to at least 80. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says it will take years for the island to rebuild areas that were burned to the ground. People in many cases will find tragically that their home was destroyed. So our hearts are out for people. Our love is out for people who lost loved ones. We're being careful about the return to properties because we want to be sensitive to what they will see. The historic town of Lahaina was the hardest hit community. Resident Tom Leonard says he lost nearly all of his belongings when he was forced to evacuate. I lost my condo, my Jeep, my laptop, my cell phone, uh, everything I ever owned for the 40 years that I lived in Lahaina. As emergency crews work to contain the blazes that broke out in Hawaii this week, wildfire season is picking up on the U.S. mainland as well. NPR's Nathan Rott reports. Dozens of uncontained large fires are burning in the U.S. right now after a historically slow start to the country's fire season. That shifted, though, as stifling heat waves and searing temperatures in recent months dried out vegetation, particularly fast-burning grasses and shrubs across much of the West. The National Interagency Fire Center warns that there's an above-average risk for significant wildfire activity in the Pacific Northwest and much of the northern Rockies for the rest of the month and into September. A number of U.S. fire crews and equipment, meanwhile, are still deployed to Canada which is dealing with its biggest fire season in recorded history. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Attorneys for former President Donald Trump are expected to share their proposal for a trial date in his election conspiracy case next week. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports prosecutors have already shared evidence with the defense team. Lawyers for special counsel Jack Smith say they'll provide Trump's defense team with 11 million pages of documents and files. The process began after Judge Tanya Chutkin imposed a protective order to limit Trump from sharing witness interviews and other sensitive information on social media. The judge says Trump has First Amendment rights, but he's subject to restrictions like any other criminal defendant. The judge says she wants to protect witnesses from intimidation and to preserve the integrity 
integrity of the jury pool in D.C. She warned the defense that inflammatory statements might force her to schedule a trial sooner rather than later. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News in Washington. Here's an invitation for you to join the party here at the Retro Cocktail Hour, where the swinging sounds of the Space Age Bachelor Pad come alive. Every week we serve up classic tiki tunes, private eye jazz, groovy bossa nova, and other incredibly strange music. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Join us for a hi-fi highball, the Retro Cocktail Hour, every week on Radio Catskill. Wednesday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Carolyn Summers says hello from a field trip in a fog at her Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. And Dr. Michael Kudish, forest biologist, speaks with Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson about his studies on plant fossils from soil samples in the Catskills. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. I'm Joe Johnson, and I'm a volunteer here at WJFF Radio Catskill. I'm not native to the Catskills, but it's been my experience that the area is filled with interesting and unique people. I recently had the chance to meet one of them in the person of forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish. Dr. Kudish taught forestry at Paul Smith College in the Adirondacks for 34 years before retiring in 2005 and moving to the Catskills. He's the author of many books and articles penning several definitive works on the plants of the Adirondacks and a four-volume set on the history of the mountain railroads of New York State. In 2021, a section of Old Growth National Forest in the Adirondacks near Paul Smith was named in his honor, as was the Michael Kudish Nature Preserve in Stamford, New York. Today, his efforts to understand the post-Ice Age history of the Catskills and the growth and development of its forest and wetlands continues. This work includes the sampling and analysis of plant fossils. These are obtained by cutting small core samples of peat from bogs throughout the Catskills. Dr. Kudish and his teams of volunteers recover samples of peat that contain seeds, cones, and other plant fragments. They do this by plunging a coring device as deep as 5 meters into these ancient wetlands. To date, he has sampled well over 100 bogs throughout the Catskills. The samples are analyzed and studied to reveal their secrets to Dr. Kudish. I recently spent a day with Doc Kudish, as his students and volunteers call him, hiking through a first-growth forest near Margaretville, New York. This was land that had never been commercially logged, and I was amazed at the meter-wide sugar maples, black cherries, and birch trees. His determination was evident as he climbed over rocks and downed trees with the help of his trusty poles. We later toured his extensive collection of bog flora samples, his archives, and his laboratory before sitting down for an interview. I hope that you enjoy it. Dr. Kudish, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. 
You started out as a botanist investigating the development of plant species on the high peaks of the Catskills, and I believe that's what your dissertation was about, wasn't it? Yes, that's true. Your work continues today as a study of bogs. What is a bog, and what do they have to tell us about the post-glacial history of the Catskills? A bog first is a wetland. It's where if you walk into it, you're going to get your feet wet. And it's a special kind of wetland. It's a peat land. That is, the dead vegetational material has decomposed only partly. So there's a big pileup over long periods of time of vegetational material, uh, which we call peat. That's a peat land. And then you can divide peat lands into bogs and fens. And they differ somewhat by their vegetation, by their physical and chemical properties, and also by the origin of where the water comes in. Now, I know most people, would, when they think of peat, they're going to think of peat moss that they put in their garden. And most people don't realize that that stuff is thousands of years old that they're adding to their garden. Yeah, some of it can be, depending on where the peat moss came from and the source. Here in the Catskills and the bogs, the peat can vary in age just under the surface from just a few years or a few tens of years. And if you go down deep enough, it could be up to 5, 10, even 15,000 years. So the age varies, depending on the depth and, and the location. So how is the peat recovered? We went on a field trip, and I saw this, but I, I found it fascinating. How Can you describe it for our listeners? Well, if the bog is shallow, shallow I mean it's less than a human arm length, then you can use an ordinary shovel. You dig a hole and you put your arm down in the hole and pull the peat out from the bottom of the hole or whatever level you want in the hole using a shovel to dig the hole and then an arm or a little garden trowel. If it's a deep bog, you need a special tool called a peat sampler, and that's what we used over at Flying Trillium Bog. It was an Eichel Camp, I don't know how to pronounce it, peat sampler, and then with extension rods you can push this device down as deep as you want to go, which can go down as much as 10, 20, 30 feet. And there's a way of of getting this open chamber filled with peat and then pulling the whole thing up to the surface. And you have a peat sample. That's for the deep bogs. What's the deepest bog you've ever sampled? The Flying Trillium. Although we didn't sample the deepest part, we were very close to it where we had stopped at the bog tour. That is the deepest bog. We used all nine extension rods. Each extension rod is a meter, and that bog is about 33 feet down. The peat is about 33 feet deep. That was by far the deepest. There are only a few in the Catskills that are over 5 meters. 5 meters is about 16 feet, and most of them are a lot less. Most of them are, oh, anywhere from just 1 or 2 meters up to about 4 or 5, which means 2 or 3 feet up to maybe 10, 15 feet. So these bogs were originally wetlands that developed after the glaciers had, had moved through the Catskills and basically erased everything that was there. They were ponds or lakes, which eventually filled in with vegetation, and the vegetation eventually piled up and didn't rot fully, or only partly fully, and became peat. So almost all the lakes, all the bogs and fens that I study were ponds. What kind of materials do you find in the peat sample? Pieces of plant material, wood, bark, seeds, cones, uh, roots, stems, parts of plants, 
Plant fragments is what plant fragments is what there. I'm looking at. There, you do find to a to a lesser extent animal fragments, but they're far and few between. One of them that is reasonably common would be the wing covers of beetles, which don't rot very well, so they're there. But as far as large animals, you're not going to find a a large mammal or bird in a bog that's only one or two feet deep mm-hmm. because they can walk out of there. So once you recover the peat sample, what's the next step? Right behind you on my lab bench back there, I've got peat samples drying in different stages of drying, and I go through them and pull the plant fossils out of them to see what plants I have. And then eventually, if the plant fossils are going to teach me something, then that sample gets sent to a laboratory for radiocarbon dating. So I know not only what plants were growing, trees and shrubs and ferns and mosses, what plants were growing in the bog, but also when. And therefore, I can reconstruct the history of the vegetation in that bog, in that fen, in that wetland, over periods of up to 10, 15,000 years. I was going to ask you, what's the oldest sample that you've ever dated? The oldest sample is at the Mountaintop Arboretum, which is outside of Tannersville in Greene County. And that dated to about 14,900 years. So very close after the glacial period. Very close after. In fact, for I think the first 1,000 years or so, there was not much of anything like a forest. There might have been a few scattered spruce trees, but it was mostly open tundra vegetation, just small shrubs and herbs and grasses and sedges. And the forest came in about 14,000 years ago, and quite quickly and thoroughly. How many bogs have you sampled here in the Catskills? I'm up to about 125. Wow. Which gives me a good picture of throughout the whole region of what was going on in the different parts of the Catskills at different times. If I had only sampled 10 or 20 of them, I would never know what I've learned. It's this large number of bogs, a very large sample, that really gives me a quite a good insight as to what's been going on here for 15,000 years throughout the whole region, east to west, north to south. And there are more to be sampled. So with all this work, what conclusions can you draw or have you drawn about your studies? Well, there are quite a few, if I can remember. One of them is that spruce and fir trees, red spruce and balsam fir, did not migrate in and cover the whole Catskills post-glacially. That is, they came in along very narrow bands, or what I call pathways, so that you have a lot of spruce and fir in the east, you have some spruce and fir in the far west, and in the middle of the Catskills, in the East Branch Delaware River Valley, there's no spruce and no fir, because it was never here. And I'm just not sure why, but something happened in what is now the Poconos of Pennsylvania about 14,000 years ago to cause these two migration routes to split and diverge. So I I still don't know what happened. I wish people would tell me what happened in the Poconos about 14,000 years ago. I don't know if anybody knows. You're going to have to find the Dr. Kudish of the Poconos. (sighs) That's one idea. (laughs) Learning why you have spruce and fir on some mountains in the Catskills and not on others, where it's not present today, it was never present. I would have never known that without the bogs. So that's one result of the bogs. Another would be that in certain places in the Catskills, we used to have hemlock up on the high ridges, and in about five or six bogs, there's no more hemlock. It's not there anymore. It disappeared maybe seven, six, five thousand years ago. 
So you have populations of hemlock coming and going, and this is not the woolly adelgid, which is only the last few decades. So we learn that. We also learn from charcoal. I get burnt wood in the bogs. And if I can get it dated, then I know not only where there was a forest fire, but when, and most of those forest fires were set by Native Americans for primarily for clearing land for food purposes. And if you have Native Americans busy in one area, you will have their villages, of course, and their hunting grounds and their farming grounds and their forest fires. And the charcoal will tell me not only where they were, but the radiocarbon dates will tell me when the fires occurred. So I have a pretty good idea of the fire history and where the Native Americans were busy and where they weren't. So we have that result of the bog studies that I would never know if I hadn't studied the bogs. So we have hemlocks, we have spruce and fir trees, we have Native Americans. The fact that most of the bogs had been lakes and ponds because in the peat I have seeds and other remnants, aquatic plants, plants which no longer grow because the bogs are filled in with vegetation, they're no longer ponds, but they used to be open ponds. And we also have not only aquatic plants like water lilies and so forth, but we have silt at the bottom of these bogs underneath the peat. And the silt was filling in during when the vegetation was coming in. So you have silt and clay at the bottom underneath the peat, and you have aquatic plants telling us that this bog used to be a pond. People say the Catskills have no lakes. Well, they do. There are a lot of them in Sullivan County and a few lakes and ponds in Delaware Green and Ulster counties. But the Catskills, up to about 10,000 years ago, had, I estimate, about 200 ponds and lakes. And most of them are gone. And those ponds and lakes have gone through succession. They've gone through succession, the and now they're, wet, they're forested wetlands, most of them. At the age of 80, most people are taking it a little easy, but here you are still tromping through the forest and bogs. And I will say that on our field trip, I had a hard time keeping up with you climbing those mountains. And I get frustrated at my slowness because <laughs> I used to be faster. We all were, sir. My question to you is, you're doing this at your age, and I wanted to know what keeps you interested and energized to keep doing this. Well, first, no one's ever told me to stop. And the discoveries keep coming, partly because of the bogs, but not completely. The curiosity is still there. That never wanes. And as long as I keep going, I can generally keep going. If I just, people say, if you just stop, you won't be able to get going again. I have slowed down. I don't do as much field work as I used to or as, as, as rigorous hikes, but I still go. And the curiosity is still there. The questions are still to be answered. And I think you also mentioned to me that a lot of people rely on you. To... That's true, too. It's, it's, that would be the internal reasons. But the external reasons is that I'm asked to present presentations at Sullivan County Community College. And I get questions every few days on email, telephone, postal service to help people out with their projects on plant distributions and history questions and so forth. And I'm advising different groups. So I get questions from other people that keep me going and get me curious. People ask me questions that I try to look up and find out for them. So it's both external and, and internal. 
But I've always been this way. I mean, I, I just haven't changed. I've just slowed down a little bit. I was really interested to find out that you had written a four-volume set on the mountain railroads of New York State. This is a seemingly, to me at least, a kind of a disconnected area for you, or unrelated to your, your main field of Could study. Could I make here. a comment? It, it's more like four and a half volumes. In 2017, the Purple Mountain Press and I did an addendum to the Catskills, Where Did the Tracks Go? So it was a slim volume, but it was all the material, the detail I found between 2011 uh, and 2017. So it's, it's five volumes, although the, the last volume was slender. So it's like four and a half. Mm. But where the railroads come from? What, what got uh, you interested? Two factors. First of all, it's always been a hobby since I was a kid. My father didn't have a car. We'd be traveling on mass transit all the time. And I just enjoyed riding on trains and studying trains. And, and uh, that hobby never ceased. So it was a hobby. But in more recent years, it became more than that. And especially the three volumes on the Adirondacks, where did the tracks go in the eastern, central, and western Adirondacks? I had another purpose in getting those books done because what I was doing in the Adirondacks is doing what I'm here in the Catskills, and that's mapping the original growth forest, what we call first growth forest. Forests that had never been logged over, burned over by people, barked by the tan bark industry, farmed, quarried, that is, undisturbed forest, original forest, been mapping those for decades in both the Catskills and Adirondacks, and if I knew where all the little railroads went, in the Adirondacks especially, all the logging lines and all the quarry lines, if I know where they went and map them out, then I would have a much better idea where to look to find the first growth forests, because if there's a railroad, there's no first growth. So there were two motives for doing the railroad history books. One of them is just I enjoy working with railroads and teaching railroads and writing the books so that some people would be finding them useful and of interest, but also telling me about the history of the forests which the railroads served. So the railroads provided access for the loggers. That's uh, loggers and also a lot of the, the quarry industries. Not only uh, bedrock quarries, but sand pits, gravel pits, glacial deposits. Now I see the connection. If you're looking for original growth forests, you don't go where there's a railroad grade. So you've got to map all the railroad grades to tell you where not to go to look for first growth forest. More so in the Adirondacks and Catskills because the railroad network was a lot more extensive with a lot more small branches in the Adirondacks than we have here. But even here in the Catskills, that's true. So it was a double purpose on the railroad books. Finally, what advice would you give to budding scientists of today? Never, ever lose your curiosity. Never, ever lose it. Try to go to places where no one has been and what no one has done, if possible. It doesn't mean generally going to remote areas on Earth. I find, and people have told me, uh, my bog work, I'm going to places where no person has ever been before. I'm in the Catskills where everybody else is, but I'm down several meters deep and five, ten, fifteen thousand years old where no one was and I'm down in there working. So in a sense, my friends tell me, you're, you're working in uncharted territory. No one has been there before. Well, there have been a few. 
There are a few colleagues of mine who have studied a few of the bogs, but only a few colleagues and only a few bogs. But as far as I know, no one has taken 125 of them and poked into their historic secrets. So another advice you can give to, to young people is, beside the curiosity, try to find things that no one's done before. And I'm sure there's plenty out there. I'm sure. Dr. Kudish, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. It has been a real experience meeting you, and I, I hope we get to work together in the future. Well, I hope so. Thanks to volunteer Joseph Johnson for this insightful interview with Dr. Michael Kudish. We just heard references to the field trip to Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty. In 1997, Carolyn and David bought an old dairy farm with hayfields and created Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. Here is owner Carolyn Summers, who hosted the bog field trip back in May. There will be um, plants that you'll see in there that you won't see anywhere else. So we have carnivorous plants. We have um, plants that um, would be found in any typical bog. When, but the story about how we found the bog was kind of interesting. When we were first looking at the property, we talked to some people locally. Um, there was a gentleman who told us that there was a bog. And um, being kind of a snotty person, I said, oh, he doesn't know what a bog is. He probably means a wetland or a swamp or something, but he probably doesn't know. Well, guess what? He knew. He knew exactly what it was. And it wasn't until the first winter when my friends and I were tooling around on top of the snowbank, and we walked through the bog, and I saw the actual seed pods of the, um, of the pitcher plants and I was like, oh my God, I know what that is. <laughs> and I knew then that we had a bog and I came back in the spring and there it was. And, and it's absolutely textbook. It has every, if you go to a textbook for bogs, for the for New England bogs, it's every plant that's in that textbook is in there. <laughs> there's pitcher plants, there's um, sundews, there's Labrador tea, stuff that doesn't grow just anywhere. So when we go there today, you will be able to see some of these plants in bloom. Unfortunately, the, the, they're not all in bloom, but we've got some Labrador tea just opening up. We've got some um, sheep laurel, bog lavender, and um, there's a few others that you will see in bloom. You might see little cranberries because the cranberries don't always get eaten every year by any, everything. So there's some bright red cranberries in there. What I'm going to ask you to do is to follow me single file. We're going to go around the edge of the bog. We're going to try to stay to the, to the drier parts of it, the bushier parts of it, interesting plants. You will get to photograph them, but I would ask you to stay in a single line. And we will just basically go around the edge of the bog and back out. More information is available at flyingtrillium.com. Organized by Lisa Lyons from Morgan Outdoors, Dr. Michael Kudish presented a lecture on Catskill Bogs and Fens at SUNY Sullivan, Lock Sheldrake, New York. Radio Catskill volunteer Stephanie Phillips recorded that lecture, and we look forward to airing that on Farm and Country at another time. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Joseph Johnson and myself, Rosie Starr. 
special thanks goes to our guest, Dr. Michael Kudish, forest biologist, and Carolyn Summers, owner of Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. Very special thanks goes to Lisa Lyons from Morgan Outdoors in Hurleyville, New York, who organized the Bog Lecture Tour event with Dr. Kudish in late May. She coordinated and communicated the logistics of the lecture at SUNY Sullivan and the field trip at Flying Trillium. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farming Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker and online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hello, I'm Sullivan County Clerk Russell Reeves. In two years 